You're listening to Elk Point Baptist Church. Subscribe to our podcast to hear every sermon and like us on Facebook by searching Elk Point Baptist Church, located in Elk Point, South Dakota. I can tell. <laughs> uh, good morning, everybody. Good morning. All right, there we go. Um, so today, first off, I'm going to say I misread the the title of this lesson at first, and once I started reading it, I realized how wrong I was. I thought it was about real discipline. <laughs> I was like, well, I guess I'll take this one on, but I, I quickly realized it was about real discipleship. So uh, today's lesson is all about real discipleship. So turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14, Luke chapter 14, and we'll be in verses 26 through 23, as you can see on the screen there. Everywhere Jesus went, crowds followed him and people hovered near him. Many admired his miracles. Other other people were drawn by his power to heal. Still others were more interested just in his healing. But not all who followed Jesus were true disciples. We had a lot of followers. There was multitudes, we know, but not all of them were true disciples. Many were curious but not committed. Many delighted to see his power but, but were not devoted to his person. In our crowd-seeking culture of striving to gain a following, it may be surprising to realize that Jesus wasn't enamored about the crowds. He wasn't engrossed in the numbers specifically. He was glad to gather them and to minister to them, but he wasn't interested in being followed out of mere curiosity. He wanted real disciples. That's what Jesus still wants. He wants real disciples. Perhaps one of the most penetrating questions in the Bible is found in John chapter 6. The previous day, Jesus had fed over 5,000 people with a few loaves and fish. He had taught uh, uh, this crowd all day and healed many people's diseases. As would be expected, the crowd sought him out the following day because of what he accomplished the day before. But this time, the people didn't hang around. When Jesus taught them that he was God in the flesh, the crowd dispersed. Believing what Jesus was saying now would cost them something. In John chapter 6, verses 66 and 67, it says, From that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Clearly there's a difference between a crowd of people and true disciples. It's easy to get a crowd to a church. All you need to have is a chili cook-off maybe, or a sports event to get them to come. As Ryan, that's probably why you came here. So uh, it's another thing, though, to develop committed followers of Christ. I'm thinking for, or I'm thankful for every person who comes to Christ as part of a crowd event. Uh, An aggressive, soul-winning church often uh, marks special Sundays in the year as crowd events with an emphasis on the gospel message. But in a real church, which is what this entire Uh, series has been about, the responsibility has just begun. Disciple-making is the core of the local church. We're here to teach one another and to grow in God and grow in His Word. It involves the work of leading people to Christ and then teaching them to commit their lives fully to Him and to grow in Him. It is our job to find somebody that doesn't know and to take them under our wing, become mentors, essentially, to disciple them, to teach them, uh, to grow closer to God. Local churches never reach their full potential if there are no true disciples of Jesus worshiping and serving the Lord in that church. Many Christians discover that it's easier to find fault 
with a church than to develop personally as a real disciple. How many people might have experienced some of that? Uh, It's less humbling to say, well, all those people are hypocrites than to say, I'm just not willing to give the Lord my complete commitment. It is much easier to point outward than look inward. Often the reasons people give when they quit serving in their church or walking with the Lord are not related to the root reason, which is really unwillingness to be a disciple. Jesus made the requirements of discipleship tough. He did not say, follow me and I'll take care of everything. I mean, he does take care of a lot for us. We can't deny that. Um, But in Luke chapter 14, verses 26 through 33, our main text for today, he three times spelled out a condition and then said, if a person is unwilling to meet it, then he cannot be my disciple. That's pretty, I'd say, pretty heavy statement right there. Uh, Look at this passage. We're going to look at this and find three-fold criteria of true discipleship. The first main criteria, number one, is love for the master. This is where it all starts. If we're going to be a disciple of Christ, uh, we must love him above anyone or anything else. That is a very challenging thing to do. Luke 14, 26, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. The crowd that was following Jesus had mixed Uh, and self-seeking motives. In this single sentence, Jesus challenged them to examine and purify their motives. Are you really following me, or are you trying to gain something from this? Jesus said, if you're not going to follow me, sorry, if you're going to follow me, you must love me, essentially. He is not a taskmaster who cares only about the services rendered to him. He is our Savior, and he desires first our love. He is a jealous God. We already know this. We can't put anybody above him. It's not enough to love the church, the pastor, the Sunday school teacher, the Bible study, a Christian friend, or the opportunities to serve in the church, or maybe what the church is providing you, but we must love Christ himself. That is our sole focus in this church. We love Christ. Our whole focus, our center point in this church is to learn about him, to be like him, to teach people to follow him, to center on his words. He is the word himself, and to fall in love with him. The closer we are to loving Christ, everything else just kind of falls into place. Quite frankly, it is our love that is often first to slip, even before our service. You can lose love for a job before you quit a job. Long before a Christian man leaves his wife, he leaves his love for God. Long before Christians quit serving in ministry, they quit walking with Jesus. So Jesus begins the conversation about real discipleship with a criteria of real love. Letter A, in comparison. The word hate in verse 26 is used for comparison. It was a Jewish idiom that Jesus' hearers immediately recognized as meaning that our love for Christ would be so much greater than the love for ourselves or any other person, including our family and ourselves, that our love for them would look like hate in contrast. It's not that we have to hate them. It's by comparison it would look like hate. We see this uh, particularly in the parallel passage in Matthew ten thirty-seven, where he said, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
and that he loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That's a convicting thought. Are we going to love him so much that it seems like we don't love our families in comparison? I don't know of a Christian who wouldn't profess to love Christ, but many of us could testify that we don't always love Christ in a way that is superior to every other relationship, so much so that our love for others look like hate. I, don't, I can't say that I'm probably there at all, to be honest. Loving Christ more than others includes loving him more than our own selves. And you can probably say, and, and I've thought this many times, well, I don't really love myself that much. But if, if, if you really sat down and thought about it and were honest with yourself, in a moment of, of real pressure or real uh, danger or real persecution or real um, anything that goes against your safety or your pride or your uh, testimony with anybody, you'll be much quicker to defend yourself than you think out of love, out of preservation for yourself. So our love for Christ should be so much more than that. We should be willing to do everything we can to defend Christ, even under the pressure. Our love for him puts his will and his plan before our own desires and our own comforts. Love for the Lord is the starting point for discipleship. Deuteronomy 6, 5, And thou shalt... Love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. The love of a disciple uh, for Christ involves our whole heart, soul, strength, being devoted to Christ. Many of us that we love, uh, many of us that know that we love him, some perhaps even a lot, but he calls us to love him with our all. So some people might know that we love him, but do we love him 100% with every ounce of us? So letter A was, was a co- uh, comparison. Letter B is incompre- uh, incomprehension. We will never have the depth of love for Christ that he deserves until we know who he is. The more we understand who he is, the more in love we are with him. Jesus said in, in verse 26, If any man come to me, It is when we comprehend who Jesus is that we understand why he is worthy of our utmost love and devotion. You can't love God and you can't love Jesus the way he truly deserves to be loved until you get to know him. He is the very son of God. He went to the cross for us. He suffered. He bled and died for us. He rose for us. And if we have trusted him as our savior, he has given us eternal life. Surely, because of all those things alone, he is worth our love. Eric Liddell, the Christian Olympian and missionary, once said, As Christians, I challenge you, have a great aim, have a high standard, make Jesus your ideal. Make him an ideal, not merely to be admired, but also to be followed. To grow in your love for Christ, begin by spending time with him, by getting to know him personally and intimately. To know him is to love him. How do we know him? How do you know somebody? How do you get to know a person? You spend time with them. So how do we get to know Christ? So 
how do we spend time with him? We read his word. Spend time in his word and in prayer. He is the word. So if we're spending time in the word, then we're spending time in Christ. The first lapse in discipleship is always a lapse of love. We don't stop serving because someone hurt our feelings if we love Christ more than we love ourselves. That's an interesting thought right there. If we love Christ more than ourselves, then having ourselves, our self-feelings hurt shouldn't matter quite as much as, as our calling of Christ. We don't quit church because someone doesn't like our child if we love Christ. Sorry, <laughs> that one hurts. <sighs> we don't quit church because someone doesn't like our child. If we love Christ more than we love our family. <sighs> I wrestled with that. But I was reassured um, that it wasn't me that failed in Mondayman. When we love Christ supremely, with our utmost, no other person or event will keep us from being faithful to him. Having Jaron not loved could have knocked me out. But here I am anyway, serving still in whatever capacity I can, no matter what. So number one is our love for the master but the second point is our service for the master. True love labors. When we love the master, it will follow that we are willing to labor for the master. In verse 27, And whosoever doth not bear the cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Two men were walking down the sidewalk when they passed a sign in a store window that read, No help wanted. Bob looked at his friend and said, you should apply, you'd be great at that. <laughs> Too often we're trying to figure out how to get out of work rather than looking for opportunities to serve. Yet Jesus declared that if we are going to be real disciples, we must be involved in serving him. Paul's love for Christ was so great that it could not be constrained from serving him. He loved him so much that he couldn't help but serve God. In 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, he said, for the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge, but or that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they which should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto which died for them and rose again. You see, the reasoning of a mature Christian works like this. Christ died for me to pay for my sin. I would be separated from God and on my way to hell if it were not for his grace. What can I do to return thanks to him? How can I do more for him than I'm already doing? How can I do more? Paul was so willing to labor for Christ that he continued to do so, even when those he served did not appreciate his sacrifice. Are we here to please men, or are we here to please God? 2 Corinthians 2.15 
and I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. Why would Paul be willing to give his life for people who didn't care for him? It was because he was ultimately giving his life for Christ. He was spending and being spent for the Lord himself. It was more about serving Christ than himself. What does service for Christ look like? How did Jesus define the service of real discipleship? Well, letter A, it was to bear the cross. Because we suffer a little of real persecution in America, we have a tendency to call the normal discomforts in life our cross, our hard jobs, or maybe a bad relationship with somebody, family issues. But pain and suffering come to everyone, not just the disciples of Christ. The cross is not a reference to every general type of suffering. To bear the cross means to bear the life that comes with following Jesus. It is very different than the trials that everybody else faces. If you are committed to following Christ in real discipleship, there will come burdens that are directly related to your love and service for Christ. One author said there is a great difference between realizing on that cross he was crucified for me and on that cross I am crucified with him the one aspect brings us to deliverance from sin's condemnation the other from sin's power Christ did not die only to deliver us from the overt and obvious sins we commit but also to deliver us from ourselves who's not thankful for that and from the sins that center on self-love selfishness willfulness, pride, personal agenda, all of it dies on the cross. To spell it out further, let's notice four aspects of bearing the cross. Number one is denial of self. Our flesh is quick to reach for and protect what we perceive to be our rights. Paul, however, wasn't. Paul was willing to deny himself and live for the Lord alone. In Galatians 2.20, he said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. There are many who call themselves Christians, but who are so consumed with themselves that they they are embarrassed to let anyone else see that they're a Christian. They do not identify with Christ personally, much less seek uh, to lead others to him. Number two, it's denial of self-will. Real disciples surrender their will and their plans to their master. And they recognize that this is simply a reasonable service, a small return for what Christ did for them. If Christ did all that for me, the least I could do is, you know, surrender my will to his plans. Romans 12.1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. It's the least you could do is surrender your body, surrender all that you have as a sacrifice. <clears throat> the mercy God has shown us compels us to de- deny our will and surrender wholly to him. Charles Spurgeon said, I have now concentrated all my prayers into one, And that one prayer is this, that I may die to self and live wholly to him. A pig and a hen were walking together past the church when they saw a sign for upcoming prayer breakfast. It said, eggs and ham will be served. 
the poster announced. Well, isn't that nice, the hen clucked happily. We get to help the church. That's fine for you to say, the pig replied. You'll be making a contribution, but I'll, I'll be making a sacrifice. Is your service to the Lord merely a contribution, giving him bits and extras of your resources? Or have you fully committed yourself in a complete package? In other words, a sacrifice. Number three is an expectation of persecution. How many people walking into the Christian faith thought this was going to be a cakewalk? I probably didn't think about that at all at first, but I quickly realized how real this can be. A disciple doesn't wonder if persecution will come. He expects that it will. 2 Timothy 3.12, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Is it any wonder that not many wanted to hang around when Jesus explained the criteria for real discipleship? We'd like to think that following Christ simply means receiving all the benefits he gives, eternal salvation, present joy, and peace. But following Christ does include these benefits. It also requires a willingness to suffer for him. Margaret Wilson from Galloway, Scotland, was executed as an 18-year-old girl on May 11, 1685. What was her crime? She would not declare King Charles II to be the head of the church. Her death sentence was to be carried out by drowning. The morning of her execution, a stake was driven into the Solway, an inlet of the Irish Sea, while the tide was out. Margaret was tied to the stake to await the return of the tide which would drown her. As the tide came in, villagers watched, eager to rescue Margaret, should she be willing to recant her statement. But as the water rose toward Margaret's chin, the sang, or she sang a hymn and quoted verses from Romans 8 about the love of Christ. Jesus, or sorry, just as the tide would have drowned her, a soldier waded out into the water, untied her, lifted her above the waves. Just pray for the king and take the oath that he is the head of the church, he commanded. I wish the salvation of all men and the damnation of none, she said, through numb lips that were blue with cold. Dear Margaret, one of the bystanders pleaded, say, God save the king. God save him if he will, for it is the salvation I desire, she responded. The soldier gave her one more opportunity to pledge her allegiance to the king as the head of the church, but she refused. I will not. I am one of Christ's children. Let me go. The soldier thrust her back into the water where she drowned. The testimony of Christians such as Margaret Wilson should cause us to blush at our unwillingness to completely surrender to Christ. It's embarrassing what little difficulties cause some Christians to quit being faithful to Jesus. She was going to be drowned and she was still faithful. And yet, a dispute in the church is enough to get us to leave. There are many Christians in local churches who come for what they like the activities, the fellowship, the encouraging messages, but they haven't fully committed themselves as a disciple of Christ. Life-threatening persecutions uh, was not restricted simply to the Dark Ages. Today, Christians in repressive nations around the world are tortured and executed for the faith in Christ. It still happens in the Middle East today. I was listening to... Uh, a message from the leadership conference in, in California, and there was a man that Paul Chapel had met, which was left nameless, but he was um, 
he was in Jerusalem and, and he was not a Christian. And he chose first to go against the missionaries that were there and start asking them lots of questions. And he took a Bible home and he decided he was going to prove them wrong and, and just study and study and study and write down questions. He ended up 122 questions he was going to ask them to try to stump them because when they asked, when, when they asked him about his faith, he couldn't really answer. He didn't really know. But he brought that, those questions to them, and they answered every single one. They had an answer for it. So he spent the next three days having them over to his home, and eventually they led him to Christ. And then he became a true follower and started preaching and teaching there in Jerusalem. And then he was taken into prison because of that, because that was against what should have been done there, and was tortured for months to try to get him to renounce his faith. It happens today. This is not a middle or a dark ages thing. This is currently happening. How is it that the United States, we quit simply because someone took our normal seat in church or cuts us off in the parking lot? For you, taking up your cross may not mean giving your life as a martyr. Let's pray that that doesn't happen. But it should mean being willing to carry or even to put on yourself whatever burden may be required to serve the Lord fully. The fourth thing is expectation of suffering. Jesus never sugarcoated the realities of living for him. He told his followers to expect suffering. The cross in first century Rome was not known as a scene of pleasure. All knew it as an instrument of horrific suffering. The Apostle Paul wrote to Christians suffering intense persecution with a reminder that suffering is not strange or unexpected to a true disciple. He said in 1 Peter 4, 12, and 13, Beloved, think it not strange concerning, concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to, unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye, ye may be glad with exceeding joy." It is only when we, man, we maintain eternal perspective that the suffering we endure for the sake of the gospel is something in which we can rejoice. Romans 8.18, For I reckon that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. John Philpot was martyred in 1555 for his faith in Christ. On December 16th, he was told that he would be burned at the stake for the, fo uh, the following morning. I am ready, he replied calmly. God grant me the strength and a joyful resurrection. He then thanked the Lord that he was counted worthy to suffer for his sake. The following morning, he was taken from prison to the stake in Smithfield, England. Being the, the depth of win winter, the road was muddy and miserable. When the officers offered to carry Philpot, he refused, saying, I am content to go my journey's end on foot. As he approached his stake, he knelt and kissed it and then said, Shall I disdain to suffer at this stake, seeing my Redeemer did not refuse to suffer a most vile death on the cross for me? As he was chained to the stake and burned, he quoted Psalms 106, 107, and 108. He did not think it strange to suffer for his Lord. Martin Luther once remarked, A religion that gives nothing costs nothing and suffers nothing. It's worth nothing. And did, indeed, when we are willing and even expecting to suffer for Christ, we prove our love for him, and it demonstrates his value to us. Jesus called his disciples to a level of commitment that would bear the cross and live wholly for him. He also called them to follow him fully. He said, and this brings us to letter B, 
come after me. Isn't it interesting how Wednesday's message, this morning's message, and Ryan's message, which we're going to hear shortly, is all about this. When a man is in love, he wants to pursue the girl he is in love with. He wants to spend time with her, get to know her, and do what pleases her. He wants to take every opportunity he can to express that love and commitment. How do we then pursue Christ as a disciple? How do we approach him? It should be very similar to that. We should pursue, want to know, have an opportunity to express our love and commitment to him. So number one, come to him by studying his word. Through scripture, we learn who Jesus is. Studying his word is a way that we study who he is. We study him. Through the pages of scripture, we discover his heart, his will for us, and his incredible goodness to us. 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Disciples of the New Testament were marked by a love for God's word and diligent study in it. In Acts 17.11, these were more noble than in Thessalonica and that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. God desires our hunger for his word. That we, it would be consuming as a newborn baby's hunger for nourishment. 1 Peter 2, 1 and 2, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. Study it daily and study it thoroughly. Don't let a day go by you don't come to him through reading and studying his word and spending time with him in prayer. Number two is come to him through daily prayer. When the God of the universe invites us to come to him with our needs and needs of others, we are foolish to ignore him. Prayer is not only a spiritual discipline. It is an opportunity to pour out our hearts to the Lord and to remain in his presence throughout the day. What does 1 Thessalonians 5.17 say without it being on the screen? Pray without ceasing. Colossians 4.2, continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving Ephesians 6:18 praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints we should pray number 3 come to him in local church worship that's where we are now we don't assemble as a church just to get together we meet to worship him to learn from his word to, and to challenge each other to be true disciples. Hebrews 10, 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as ye the, see the day approaching, the sooner it is to Christ's coming, the more we should desire to come together and grow in him. Number four is to come to him through obeying his word. We are not to be just hearers, but doers of the word. It's not enough to study the word and to hear it, we must obey it. James 1, 21 and 22, Wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive the meekness of uh, the engraved word which is able to save your souls, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. One of the most needful areas of discipleship is for mature disciples to take time to disciple new Christians teaching them scripture, and to be doers of scripture in their everyday living. We need to find somebody that wants to grow. 
take them under our wing and disciple them. One author wrote, disciples are not manufactured wholesale. They are produced only one by one because someone has taken the pains to disciple, to instruct, and to enlighten, to nurture and train one that is younger than them. Number five, come to him bringing new believers. Several of Jesus' first disciples were fishermen by trade, and as he called them to leave everything and follow him, he told them from that point forward they would be fishers of men. Matthew four eighteen and 19, and Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he said unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. We can deduct from this statement that if we are not fishers of men, we are not truly followers of Christ. True disciples are regularly seeking to bring others to Christ. That is our sole commission. As we can see from these spiritual disciplines of discipleship, coming after Christ is not passive but active. It is born of a resolute decision to incorporate our love for him and service to him to be our regular routines. The first thing we saw in this main verse for today in Luke is love for the master. The second point was service for the master. But now number three, it's the surrender for the master. A life of discipleship is a life of full surrender to Jesus. In Luke 14, 33, So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath cannot be my disciple. If you don't forsake everything you're holding on to, every plan you had in your life, you are not my disciple. So what do we do to surrender to him? Well, letter A, it's surrender our position. As a disciple, we are no longer the boss of our lives. Frankly, we are his bond slaves. Matthew 10, 24, the disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. We love to be the masters of our own lives. I think we can all agree with that. (laughs) Well, I'm going to give you everything except these three things, Lord. These are mine. I frankly don't trust you very much with those things. I'd rather take care of it myself because I think I got it figured out. Well, Go very long in that statement and you fall flat on your face. (laughs) We cannot retain ownership and be a disciple of Christ. A disciple submits to his master, desiring nothing more but to do the master's will. Jonathan Edwards, one of the preachers that God used to bring the great awakening in colonial America, wrote, I claim no right to myself, no right to this understanding, this will, these affections that are in me. Neither do I have any right to this body or its members, no right to this tongue, to these hands, feet, ears, or eyes. I have given myself clear away and not retained anything of my own. I have been to God this morning and to hold him have, or and told him I have given myself wholly to him. I have given every power so that for the future I claim no right to myself in any respect. I have expressly promised him for by his grace I will not fail. I take him as my whole portion and Felicity, looking upon nothing else as any part of my happiness. His law is the constant rule of my obedience. I will fight with all might against the world, the flesh, and the devil to the end of my life. I will adhere to the faith of the gospel, however hazardous and difficult the profession and practice of it may be. I pray God for the sake of others to look on this as self-dedication. Henceforth, I am not to act in any respect as my own. I shall act as 
as my own if I ever make use of any of my powers to do anything that is not to the glory of God or to fail to make the glorifying of him my whole and entire business, if I murmur in the least at affliction, if I am able, if I am in any way uncharitable, if I revenge my own case, if I do anything purely to please myself or omit anything because it is a great denial, if I trust myself, if I take any praise for any good which Christ does by me, if I am in any way proud, I shall act as my own and not God's. But I promise or I purpose to be absolutely his. That is a committed statement. <laughs> Jesus pointed out that we should not expect to be treated with better treatment than he received. He said in Matthew 10.25, It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master and the servant as his Lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? Jesus willingly endured the pain and humiliation of the cross. He was ridiculed, beaten, and killed for all the people who were ridiculing, beating, and killing him. And yet somehow our level of commitment to the Lord is so shallow that we resign our service at the slightest offense and smallest provocation. Real discipleship comes from a heart of real commitment and real surrender. Perhaps we should adopt missionary C.T. Studd's motto as our own. He said, if Jesus Christ is God and denied or, and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Letter B, we surrender our lives. The surrender of discipleship is not a surrender of our actions only, but of our very lives. Romans 12, 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, accept, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Those whom... God has greatly used has been people of surrender. D.L. Moody, a man who is said to have shaken two continents with the gospel, said, let God have your life. He can do more with it than you can. So in closing, those who come to Christ as real disciples with a heart of love, with a heart of service and a heart of surrender have a surprise in store. The the glad reality is that although Christ demands that we give him our all, he gives us so much more in return than we have to offer. There will be suffering for the committed disciple, but there will also be joy. There will be a cross, but we do not lift it alone. Christ himself, as our burden bearer, gives us comfort and hope as we press forward for him. In addition to blessings of this life, the true disciple has the promise that what he does now counts for eternity. What a joy it will be to stand before Christ and offer him the fruit of our discipleship. Everything that we gave, sacrificed for him. The call to real discipleship is a call to deeper love, stronger devotion, and fuller surrender to Jesus. And as we talked about a little bit on Wednesday, yes, it's scary to commit fully and to give him everything we have, but it is so much better to be in his hands and in his plan on his path than to be on our own. I'd rather walk alongside and be picked up when I'm weak than to bear the burdens myself. So let's be real disciples today. Real followers of him and in turn sacrifice everything we have and pour ourselves into another human being to bring people to him. 
We have time for some questions. I'm done a little bit early today. It was gonna be longer and I, that's clearly why I rushed through it <laughs> uh, with time to spare. So do we have any questions or comments? 